Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is now the fourth episode of season five. I hope you all managed to check out episode three last week. It focused on the horrific crimes of paedophile killer Colin Hatch. It was probably a tough one to listen to given its content and I can assure you it was very difficult to research. As always, let's break the ice a little bit before we get into this week's story. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. And this week's dad fact is thus. In 1814, a beer wave of almost 400,000 gallons flooded several streets in London after a vat from a local brewery ruptured. Mm-hmm. Delicious. wonder what beer it was. A lot of people don't like light beer, you know, like Bud and Cause Light. I like it. It's not gassy. It goes down quick. And it's cheap at most places. I was going to say the one that everyone goes to, but other retailers are available. I digress. The second and final in opening icebreaker segment is this. The Serial Killer's Book of Haiku. Hi-ya! Here is this week's haiku. Head hacked open. Eyes stare wide, still fluttering. Blood and brain mashed. Oof. Brutal as ever. A haiku is a Japanese poem made up of 17 syllables in three lines of 5, 7 and 5. It's also meant to be read in one breath. There's a link to this book here with the Serial Killer's Book of Haiku 2 by Rose Bundy. That's where I get these from. It's in the episode description if you're interested in buying it. There has been a competition running over the last couple of weeks with the winner getting the chance to receive a copy of Rose's first haiku book. I asked you to send me your own haikus and I received some fantastic entries. The deadline was February 14th. I'll be revealing the winner at the end of this week's episode, so stick around to find out if that person is you. With my intro waffle complete, let's get into this week's episode. This case was suggested via email by listener Alex Ashwood, also known as Alex Strange. We're finally back in Wales this week. The last time we were in Cymru, hope I'm saying that right, was for episode 8 of season 4, when we looked at the story of Ewan Peters, aka Sax Coke. This time we're in the historic county of Monmouthshire. 
I must apologise in advance for any butchering of Welsh place names. I've tried my best to understand how things are properly pronounced. I've even broken them down phonetically within the script, but I'm sure I'll get them wrong anyway. Within Monmouthshire, our story takes place in the town of Abertillery. Here are five quick facts about Abertillery. Abertillery's main economic interest was coal mining, with the first deep coal mine being sunk at Tier Nicholas Farm in 1843. The last mines were closed in the 1980s. Current UFC bantamweight fighter and former Cage Warriors bantamweight champion Jack Shaw was born in Abertillery. The 27-year-old Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt is currently undefeated in his MMA career. 15 wins from 15 fights, four of which have been in the UFC. Not bad. Abertillery Museum has locally discovered artefacts dating as far back as the Bronze Age. It's approximately 3300 to 1200 BCE. Abertillery is overlooked by St. Iltyd's Church. I'm always questioning myself with this pronunciation in Welsh. St. Iltyd's Church, a Grade 2 listed building, which is the oldest standing building in the county borough of Blyney Gwent. Blyney Gwent? It doesn't look like that's how it sounds, but apparently that's it. Blyney Gwent. It dates back to the 13th century, that more than likely has 6th century origins. And finally, fact number five, Abertillery was officially twinned with Royat, a town in the Auvergne, a former administrative region of central France, on the 1st of March 2010. Auvergne has been part of Auvergne-Rhône-Alpes, mad place names this week, a new southeast central France region, southeast central, since January 1st 2016. Plenty of straw clutching this week with my five facts, as you can probably tell. With a population of 11,601, according to the 2011 census, Abertillery was once called home by the villain of this week's episode. The villain in question was named Harold Jones. Now, as with last week, this week's episode focuses on the sexual assault and murder of children. As always, feel free to skip this one if you're likely to be distressed by hearing that sort of content. Harold Jones was born on January 11th, 1906 in, you guessed it, Abertillery. Although our story actually starts in the year 1921, when Harold was 15 years old. 101 years ago this story's from. That to me makes it extremely interesting, though I can also assure you it makes it a complete pain in the ass to research. Harold, having recently celebrated his 15th birthday, was working as a shop assistant in a poultry shop at the start of 1921, after dropping out of school the year before. A poultry shop, I assume, is what we now call a butcher's shop except it deals exclusively in poultry. Anyway, Harold lived with his parents and three siblings, either on or close to Duke Street, a residential area made up of terraced houses on a rather steep hill. I had to Google map that one. I would not want to live on it. The patriarch of the working-class Jones family was Philip Jones, a hard-working coal miner who laboured hard to put food on the table and clothes on everyone's back. Mrs Jones, Harold's mother, whose first name I don't know, was a housewife who looked after the house and kids whilst Philip was at work. Considered to be an intelligent pupil at his school, you may later question as to why everyone thought that as this story unfolds. Maybe he was book smart, but just lacked common sense. On February 5th, 1921, an eight-year-old girl named Freda Burnell was sent to the poultry shop where Harold worked by her father, a popular member of the Salvation Army. Freda's task that morning was to purchase some chicken feed, known also as poultry spice. Harold and Freda knew each other, owing to the fact Freda would often visit the Jones house to play with Harold's younger sister Flossie. Freda would not be seen alive again. 
Harold Jones, apparently concerned about Freda's disappearance, made a visit to her family's home on the evening of February 5th to inquire as to whether or not she had been found. He was informed by Freda's father that she had not. She had disappeared without a trace until her body was found in the early hours of the following morning, Sunday, February 6th, 1921. Her killer had placed her body inside a burlap sack and dumped it on a secluded side road near Duke Street, roughly 200 yards from her home. Around her neck was a rope, which had been pulled so tight that it prevented Freda's ability to breathe. She'd been strangled to death. The police were called and they started making inquiries to ascertain who the last person to see Freda alive was. Following the chain of events as told by Freda's father, it was logical that Harold Jones must have been that person. He was taken in for questioning, and whilst there, a vital piece of evidence was handed in to the police by local seedsman Henry Mortimer. I'd never heard of someone referring to themselves as a seedsman, but a little bit of digging informs me that it's simply someone who sells seeds. I probably should have figured that out without an online search, to be fair. The piece of evidence handed in by Mr Mortimer on February 6th was a handkerchief that he'd found in his seed shed. But why was that significant? Well, Harold Jones was tasked with feeding Mr Mortimer's chickens every Saturday morning at around 9.30am. Mr Mortimer explained that Harold was on his property from 9.30am to 10.05am on the morning of Saturday, February 5th, 1921. The shed, which was only accessible via a key that Mr Mortimer kept in his possession, had an opening in one of the windows. It was whilst looking through that opening that Mr Mortimer spotted the handkerchief. After picking it up, he conducted a little experiment. He placed his arm through the opening and dropped his own hanky. Came as no surprise when it landed in almost the exact same spot the unidentified hanky had landed. This meant that whoever had ditched the hanky had done so in the same manner, by placing their arm through the opening and dropping it before leaving the area. Seeing as Harold Jones was the only other person known to have been on Mr Mortimer's property on February 5th, the police arrested him on February 7th, 1921. A carefree Harold showed little interest in the charge placed upon him and he continually protested his innocence. He was remanded in custody at Usk Jail, located in the town of Usk in Monmouthshire. Whilst at Usk, Harold apparently gained a fair bit of weight. According to his solicitor, Mr J Everett, Harold gained a minimum of £10 whilst on remand. You can dissect that two ways in my opinion. Either Harold was so comfortable and confident of his innocence, he just put his feet up, ate like a king, or he was so nervous about being found guilty that he panic ate. Then again, most people eat far less or go without food completely when they're anxious, so that doesn't really fit the mould. The third option, of course, was that Harold knew he was guilty, but knew the police had nothing on him to link him to Freda's murder. Several preliminary proceedings took place before the final verdict was given in June 1921. In March 1921, a month after Freda's death, the jury initially agreed that she was murdered. With regards to who the killer was, they had no idea, so their decision was changed to an open verdict. An open verdict is a legal decision that records a death but does not state its cause. The coroner, the person who open verdicts get referred to for further clarification, wasn't happy with that decision. The jury once more went away to talk it over, and upon their return, they decided that this was a case of murder against some person or persons unknown. Not exactly a helpful verdict. The following month, in April 1921, the coroner provided medical evidence confirming Freda's cause of death. 
Brace yourselves. The cause of death in this case was attempted rape, partial asphyxiation, neck injuries caused by the ligature, a blow to the head, and shock as well as nervous fright. The final verdict was made by a jury containing seven men and five women on June 23rd, 1921. They found Harold Jones not guilty of the murder of Freda Burnell, and he was subsequently released. When he arrived back in Abertillery with his father, Harold was greeted with a welcome that wouldn't have been out of place for a war hero returning from battle. Hundreds of people from the local community put up banners to welcome the wrongly accused 15-year-old back home. They'd later come to regret their hospitality. Two weeks after Harold Jones's acquittal, another young girl went missing in Abertillery. This time it was 11-year-old Florence Irene Little, who was better known to her friends as Florrie. Florence was an incredibly bright schoolgirl who was in what was known as Standard 6. As far as I can tell, Standard 6 was one of, if not the highest learning level for Florence's age at the time, with textbooks being aimed at first-class pupils or teachers. Such was her intelligence, Florence was even recommended by her teacher to attend the prestigious Abertillery County School. Sadly, the young elocution prize winner would be denied her chance to attend and further her education. Like Freda Burnell, Florence's father Arthur was a miner, and the small family lived only a hundred yards away from where poor Freda's body was found. Also like Freda, Florence one day disappeared into thin air. The date was July 8th, 1921, and Florence had not long finished her supper shortly after 9pm. At roughly 9.30pm, Florence began playing in the street with Flossie Jones, Harold's sister. Arthur remembers looking out and seeing the girls playing together at what he recalled as being 9.45pm that evening. Not long after that last sighting of his daughter, Florence's father exited the house, called out for her to come home as it was nearing a bedtime. No answer was received. A few hundred yards away in the Jones house, Harold's mum arrived back home at around 10pm. As she made her way into the back kitchen, she was greeted by a topless Harold Jones. As he nonchalantly combed his hair, Harold informed his mum that he'd just got out of the bath and needed a new shirt to wear. Mrs Jones went to retrieve a new shirt, having no clue as to what had happened to the one her son was previously wearing. Across the way at Florence's house, her parents were extremely worried. Everyone in the neighbourhood remembered what had happened with Freda Burnell five months earlier and they were understandably concerned for Florence's safety. How right they were to be worried. Several search parties were formed and a 25 mile radius was set. Amongst those searching the nearby fields and streets were Harold Jones and his father Philip. Florence's father had recalled how Harold suggested they get some bloodhounds to join the search parties. Arthur Little said, I went into the house for a few minutes, and later, when I went into the street for the purpose of calling Florence in to go to bed, she was not to be found. Her mother called her and searched for her, but no trace of her could be discovered. No one seemed to have seen her. Sometime before ten o'clock, my wife, who was greatly alarmed, went to the house of Jones, and Harold, who was bathing at the time, answered her. In reply to her question, he said, Florrie has left our house some time. That's a crucial part of the story that I'll tie up later. Florence's mum popped round to Harold's house whilst he was in the bath. After she left, Harold finished bathing and that was when his mum arrived back home. Such fine margins in this timeline. 
The searchers carried on into the night and through to the early hours of the following morning. With nothing found, the decision was made by the police to conduct house-to-house searches within the local area. One of the little family's closest neighbours was the Jones family. Their houses were about 30 feet apart, and as we've established, their children all played together. The search of Harold's house commenced at 9.45am and was led by Deputy Chief Constable Henry Lewis. Right away, things didn't quite add up. The walls of the property appeared to have been recently wiped down. They were immaculately clean. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. DCC Lewis then found two vital pieces of evidence covered in blood. The first was a kitchen knife found in a table drawer. The other was a stick found in the back kitchen by the boiler. With the search of the house coming to a close, DCC Lewis was about to move his officers onto the next location. Luckily, an eagle-eyed officer noticed a dark smear on the roof by a trapdoor leading to the attic. Preparing himself for what he was likely to see, DCC Lewis opened the two-foot-wide trapdoor and made his way into the attic. As soon as his head popped above the opening, he immediately saw something that would haunt him for the rest of his life. The dead body of a young girl was lying in a pool of blood, with a grey army shirt covering her upper body and head. The sleeve of the army shirt was wrapped around the girl's neck, and a rope was tied around her body. Upon removal of the grey army shirt, it was confirmed that the body belonged to Florence Little. It was also clear to see that her neck had been slit open. Harold Jones was then arrested and taken into custody, charged with Florence's murder. DCC Lewis made the following statement. Harold Jones has been charged with the murder of Florence Little. I discovered the body in his house this morning. He will not be brought before the magistrate today. Later that evening, Harold was given the once-over by Dr Lloyd, who discovered a series of scrapes all over his arms. Harold explained that the injuries had occurred when he fell off his bicycle a few days earlier. The Dr Lloyd wasn't buying it. He said, In my opinion, they were more recent than that and were less than a day old. Whilst in custody, Monmouthshire County's chief analyst, Mr George Thompson, examined a pair of Harold's trousers. He found what he perceived to be human bloodstains in the left hip pocket and on the right front leg. A post-mortem was conducted by Dr Lloyd, who determined the cause of death was exsanguination, as a result of Florence's jugular vein being severed. It was estimated that it would have taken a maximum of 15 minutes for Florence to die after her throat was slit. Harold remained disinterested throughout, as he had when he was charged with the murder of Freda Burnell. Perhaps he thought he would be acquitted once more. One of the more concerning aspects of this murder was its lack of an obvious motive. Nobody could work out why Harold would want to murder Florence. Harold, of course, didn't help and protested his innocence, despite overwhelming evidence against the contrary. Florence's funeral was held on July 3rd, 1921, only five days after her disappearance. At the time, her funeral was said to have been the largest in Wales, with hundreds of children and their parents attending. At a preliminary proceeding on July 22, 1921, it took the jury a mere 30 minutes to find Harold Jones guilty of the willful murder of Florence Little. There was no messing about this time. Regarding the chain of events on that fateful July night, here is what is believed to have happened. Harold Jones approached Lily Mae Little, Florence's younger sister, and asked her to tell his sister, Flossie, that he wanted a word with her, 
bear with me on this one. It gets, I had to read this through about five times before I got what was going on. What was said between the Jones siblings remains a mystery, but Flossie then went and told Florence that Harold wanted a word with her. The two girls, Flossie and Florence, then went inside the Jones residence, but Flossie went back outside. When Lily later asked Flossie where her sister was, Flossie explained that she had gone out of the back door with Harold, so confusing that one of them's called Flossie and the other one's known as Florrie or Florence. Honestly, I could not wrap my head around this one when I first read it. Even when I read it six times. It's thought the piece of wood found by the boiler was used to hit Florence over the head and incapacitate her. Harold then used the kitchen knife to slit Florence's throat over the sink, effectively draining her body of its entire blood supply, whilst ensuring the clean-up job would be minimal. The coroner went on record saying there were barely two teaspoons of blood left in Florence's body. A table found in Harold's bedroom was also covered in bloodstains and was suspected as being used to aid him to lift Florence's body into the attic. Florence's clothes were slightly ripped, but it was revealed there was no evidence of a sexual assault. In an unexpected twist, Harold confessed to the murder of Florence Little in November 1921. The confession was actually written in September 1921, but it was being held by his solicitor at Harold's request. It read, I, Harold Jones, confess I did willfully and deliberately murder Flora Little on July 8th, causing her to die without preparation to meet her God, the reason for doing so being the desire to kill. Flora was about to leave the house when I got hold of her, seized her throat, and cut her throat with a knife in the back kitchen, putting her head over the wash. I then went into the front room, leaving Flora's body in the wash. I think that he means the sink there. I went to the kitchen, bringing a shirt, which I wrapped around her head. I carried the body upstairs, brought a little table out of the room, put the body on the table, and then got on the table. I took the body in my arms and tried to push it into the garret attic. I then replaced the body on the table and went downstairs to get a rope from outside in the backyard. I returned upstairs, tied the rope to the body, got on the table, dragged myself through the manhole with the end of the rope in my hands. Then, finding the rope not long enough to enable me to get the rope through the manhole, I got back on the table, tied my handkerchief to the rope, clambered up through the manhole and dragged the body up to the loft. What a palaver! After getting back to the table, I replaced the cover on the manhole, replaced the table in my room, and went downstairs to get a bowl of water and a cloth. I took it upstairs to wash off the stains of blood on the walls, the landing, and the table. I went downstairs to fetch a kettle, and finding more blood stains, I washed them off, and then went upstairs, throwing the water out of the bowl into the Bosch. Not sure what that is. As I was having a bath, Mrs. Little came to the door, just as I was washing my head and my body. I denied Flora was in the house and went back and finished my bath. I hereby declare the above statement to be true, dated September 17th, 1921. Sentencing judge Mr Justice Roche said during sentencing, I am satisfied from the doctor's evidence that the boy's mind is as right and sane as anyone in this court in the sense in which the law regards sanity. Otherwise, had I the slightest doubt, I should not have allowed this plea to be accepted. Perversion of instinct in that sense, yes, the boy is not normal, of course. The defence of insanity was not raised on a former occasion or on this. Because strange and abnormal as regards his moral character, there is, to my mind, no ground or suggestion on the evidence for saying he is otherwise than sane. Let him go away from here as quietly as possible. 
I make this observation because I understand that on a former occasion, public opinion in the lad's favour was loudly vented, and the lad became a sort of hero. Referring to someone as lad, you got to love 1920s slang. Let not the contrary take place, whatever people's feelings be. Among the motives which contributed to the second crime was overwhelming vanity, and a desire to be in the public eye, which could not but have been fed by the unseemly and unnatural demonstrations which I understand took place on a former occasion. Words are not wanted and I think they are useless in this case. My duty is simply to pass on to you the sentence which the Act of Parliament has decreed shall be the sentence passed on anyone under 16 years of age who is convicted or pleads guilty to this offence. The sentence upon you is that you be detained during His Majesty's pleasure. I know that's a long statement and it's oldie-worldie language. Basically he's saying the sentence was to be detained under His Majesty's pleasure. We had a king back then. Under His Majesty's pleasure, or Her Majesty's pleasure, it's a legal term, essentially means there is no minimum tariff given. The death penalty could not be considered for Harold because he was under the age of 16, as the judge alluded to at the end of his statement. He turned 16 in January 1922, two months after being handed that sentence. Then, a second written confession was made by Harold, in which he admitted to having killed Freda Burnell. It read... I, Harold Jones, willfully and deliberately murdered Freda Burnell in Mr Mortimer's warehouse on the 5th of February. Signed, Harold Jones. Harold spent a total of 20 years in prison before being released at the age of 35 in December 1941. Where he went after being released is subject to many theories and conspiracies. Some say he returned to his parents' house in Abertillery. Others say he changed his name to Harry Stevens and moved to Fulham in West London. Local historian Neil Wilkins states that Harold joined the army, served in Libya, before his military service ended in February 1946. Harold appears to have resurfaced again in the mid-1960s, at the same time as the Jack the Stripper murders occurred. The Jack the Stripper murders, also known as the Hammersmith Nude murders, involved the killing of six sex workers between 1964 and 1965 in West London. It's also believed by some that two murders in 1959 and 1963 were committed by the same perpetrator. A Scottish security guard called Mungo Ireland was believed to be the main subject, however he took his own life before he could be arrested. Each of the murders fitted Harold's MO. The women were all strangled and stripped of their clothing with no evidence of sexual assault taking place. For Harold, sexual assault wasn't what got him excited. It was the act of killing people that gave him a thrill. The last victim of Jack the Stripper disappeared on January 11th, 1965, Harold Jones's 59th birthday. Coincidence? Fast forward to January 2nd, 1971, nine days before Harold's 65th birthday, and the Abertillery child murderer died after a battle with bone cancer. Despite living under the alias of Harry Jones, Harold insisted to his wife that his death certificate should say Harold Jones. Jack the Stripper's victims were 30-year-old Hannah Tailford, 25-year-old Irene Lockwood, 22-year-old Helen Barthelemy, 30-year-old Mary Fleming, 21-year-old Frances Brown, and 27-year-old Bridget O'Hara. The other two victims often associated with Jack the Stripper were 21-year-old Elizabeth Figg and 22-year-old Gwyneth Rees. The identity of the killer remains a mystery to this day, and the case remains unsolved. As for Freda Burnell and Florence Little, they were both buried at Brynethel Cemetery in Blyneye Gwent, 
A fundraising campaign was started by local historian Neil Milkins in November 2017 after both graves had fallen into a state of disrepair. Around three grand was required to restore both graves. Neil managed to raise over four grand. The graves were fully restored in 2018 and I must say they look absolutely beautiful. Excess funds raised were donated to the Abertillery Miners Institute that was first run by Florence Little's grandfather George. Another schoolgirl, 12-year-old Muriel Drinkwater, was raped and shot on June 27, 1946 in a woodland area in Swansea, South Wales, as she made her way home from school. The unsolved case is referred to as the Little Red Riding Hood murder by the media. In 2003, during a case review, a semen stain was found on Muriel's coat. One suspect was cleared as a result of new DNA testing, and a second suspect was also shockingly ruled out. The second suspect was Harold Jones. Detective Chief Inspector Mark Lewis said, The results of the forensic examination categorically confirm that Jones was not responsible for the murder of Muriel Drinkwater. Due to advances in forensic technology, we have been able to look again at evidence from the murder in 1946, and I am now able to rule out Harold Jones completely as a suspect in this case. I have spoken to Muriel's family to bring them up to date with the latest details of this investigation. And that was the story of British child murderer Harold Jones. Thanks again to Alex Strange for suggesting that case. As promised at the start of this episode, I can now reveal the winner of the haiku competition was, drumroll please, Sue Harrison. Sue's haiku reads, Party trick of death, smiling clown, evil within, cold steel handcuffs gleam. A clear reference to John Wayne Gacy there, I believe. His whole thing was uh, making his victims put handcuffs on themselves after first putting them on himself, but then breaking free. And then when they said, how do you get out? He said, you need the key, which was on his person. Congratulations, Sue. If you reach out either to me or to at RoseBundy5 on Twitter, we'll sort out sending you a copy of Rose's first haiku book. Thanks to everyone else for your entries. I've got four new reviews to read out this week. Thank you, firstly, Apple Podcast user Jaden555 for leaving British Murders a five-star rating and review. Jaden said, By far one of the best podcasts I've come across. I work nights and having these episodes come out weekly really help make the nights go faster. Keep up the good work, Stuart. Thank you, Apple Podcast user Susie1H for leaving British Murders a five-star rating and review. Susie said, Short but very informative. There hasn't been a single episode that I haven't enjoyed. All the better that Stuart is from my home county of Yorkshire. Keep up the great work, Stuart. Thank you, Mai, for leaving a five-star rating and review on BritishMurders.com. Mai said, I think it's a great podcast. For ages, I've been looking for a podcast that mainly focuses on British true crime, and this is perfect. It's not really slow like other podcasts, and it's at a great pace to follow while I'm doing other things like work, school, etc., you have a really calming voice, and I don't find it hard to focus on what you're saying, unlike others. Now, a great way to relax is to sit down, make a cuppa, and put on your podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Love that. And finally, thank you, JC Kennett, for leaving British Murders a five-star rating and review on Facebook. JC said, Love this podcast. It's now in my top three. Straight to the point. Love it. I really appreciate your kind words and support, Jaden, Susie, Mai, and JC. Jaden, I know you've done two reviews and ratings. I really appreciate you. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Podchaser, or on BritishMurders.com. 
You can also leave star ratings on Spotify, so please continue to do that. You can become a Patreon member to gain early access to ad-free episodes, or donate on a one-off basis via buymeacoffee.com. Links to both of those are on my website. Please continue sending in your case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me on social media or contact me on the website. There's a form on there. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll also get a cheeky shout out. That's it for now. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.